0: You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. If you've got your hand out there in the back, hopefully we're going to be talking about, once again, soteriology, which is a real fancy word for, well, remember? Salvation, right? About how we are saved. And so tonight what we're going to do uh, is to look at what does it mean Uh, especially on this topic here, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, okay? How many of you have ever had this question asked to you? Raise your hand, okay? How many of you ever thought about that is God in control or are we in control, right? Um, You really, uh, I didn't really get into a lot of these discussions until I went to Bible college and realized that there was a debate about such things. I never knew, right? People started talking about words like predestination and Calvinism, and i never heard of such things. And tonight, we're going to solve it for everybody who's been arguing about it for the last 2,000 years. Sound good? We're going to be done. going to take us 40 minutes to do it. We're going to be there, okay? Uh, here's what we know. Many people have attempted to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but the Bible never claims them to be at odds with one another. What do you think about that? Sovereignty, once again, means he's in control, right? But if he's in control, if he's like in complete control, what we typically think of, well, if he's in control and he's the author of even our decisions, what does that mean? That we're just robots, we don't have any choice, and those who are going to follow him, follow him, and those who don't, they, they don't, and so that's a problem. But if man is completely responsible and God's going, I don't know what's going to happen, I'm scared, you know? So there, there's got to be some balance here. The Bible doesn't seem like these two things are odd together. So tonight we're going to discover what I believe to be the biblical approach for salvation regarding God's part and our involvement. So to do so, let's talk a little bit first about the elements of salvation to realize this, that God saves us from something and to something. Okay? And this is why we, we've got to start here. Because uh, when you think about the word that he's saving, there is something that he is saving us from but also something he's saving us to. Obviously, there's a saving us from. What are some of the things, what is salvation attempting to save us from? Judgment, okay? God's judgment. What else? Sin, right? Death, hell, the grave, ourselves, right? A lot of stuff he's saving us from. What does he save us to? What's something? What is he? why does it? If the point of salvation was just for us to get forgiveness, then the moment that you you prayed and said, "I want to receive Christ," and you would just vanish and go up to heaven, right? But apparently, we're all still here. So why are we still here? What has he saved us to? It's sanctified, yeah. Good works. Power over sin. You had to see like obedience like take place, like I'm seeing progress, right? To go and share his news to somebody else, right? Like to do good things for the time that we have. So God saves us from something, but he also saves us to something. So the point of salvation is not just free admission to heaven, you know, do not pass go, do not collect, you know, like it's, it's not like the point of salvation is that there's actually something for us to do. We are saved by God for, for something to do. Romans 5 9 says since we have now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved from God's what wrath Wrath through him this is Jesus and so the reason why I say that is I need to make sure everybody understands when you see that verse right there it says that Jesus Christ has saved us from God's wrath so if you think that one day when you die you still have to face God's judgment you do not understand the cross of Christ. Because if you still feel like God's going to punish you for your sin, then why did Jesus have to pay for it? Jesus didn't sin, so if he got on the cross, it's not because of his sin, it's because of our sin, and if therefore he went to the cross for our sin and then later for us to be punished by it, there was no need for him to go to the cross in the first place. You follow? So with this, we have been justified by his blood. I'm justified by his blood. not my blood, God sees me as clean now, and how much more will I be saved from God's wrath through him. So I'm saved from God's wrath. I don't have to worry about one day God going to get me, right? That that old preacherism of one day God's going to get you to heaven and have a real long sit down and talk with you about all the stuff you blew down there and you didn't get anything right and here's what all your life could have been about if you'd actually been serious down there but now enjoy eternity knowing that I'm really frustrated with you. That's not what heaven is, right? We go through those gates and God is saying, welcome home. God, but I I don't deserve here. You're right, you don't, but Christ does, and you're wearing his righteousness right now. You're dressed in that. And so we are saved. And so so the Bible uses different terms, like the term of adoption. So I think it's a beautiful, beautiful way to look at it. He, He says it this way, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, what? abba father this is a near and endearing like term of like dad right this is father this is oh i'm 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 close to you so you are no longer a what Slave. slave but you are a son and if a son then you're an heir through god now i bring that up to you out of these verses to say that god equates salvation to adoption and that he desires us and wants to bring us into his family and what happens is he changes our hearts and we cry out to him like abba father right um had one of these like little um frustrating slash tender moments as a dad just last night i didn't get a lot of sleep last night or something that woke Gloria up, and if she wakes up, she's kind of has a hard time going back down. And So I put her to sleep, and then I, and, and she'd wake back up. Then I put her to sleep, she'd wake back up. So then I said, Okay, I'm just gonna lay on the floor in the dark and look over my sermon while you go to sleep. Go to sleep quickly because dad's gonna get hurt in here in a little bit. And so every time, though, she falls asleep, and then I try to get up off the floor and pop or something. I'm awake, I'm like, Oh gosh. So I'm just wondering, like, I, I kept doing this, just trying every time I'd get up, it wake her, it'd, it'd startle her. Or something, I remember one night, uh, last night, I leaned over her one time, and I said, darling, you're going to have to go to sleep. She goes, I'm trying really hard, Dad. I just keep hearing stuff or something. I don't know what keeps waking me up. And I'm just sitting there going, like, I think she could tell, like, my body is sore from getting off the floor. And she just hugs me. She goes, you're a real good dad. (laughs) I said, okay, thank you. I I needed that at about that time at night because I'm, like, going, I'm going to put you to sleep, girl. Okay, like, I'm at that point, right? And she goes, you're a real good dad to me, right? And I'm just sitting there going, like, um, parents, grandparents, if you ever experience this, there's one thing: if you initiate, say "I love you," and they say "I love you back," that, that sounds nice. But you know what sounds very, very different when the kid out of nowhere just says "I love you." Oh, right? Thank you. You know those words? Okay, like you actually said thank you for something without me saying. What do you say? Right? Okay, like did that? That when when it's prompted, right? And, and and this this is saying how is it prompted? Because God has adopted us into his family. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and we're crying out like, we've got a dad now. We've got somebody who cares for us. No matter if your earthly father was there or he was not, your heavenly father has never left you. He's always been there. And so this, this idea of adoption, God desires to bring rebellious children into his family. Like he desires to. He knows what he's getting into. People who will sometime... Uh, warn people of adopting well, you don't know what you're getting into when you adopt a child You don't know what you're getting into when you birth one either, right? You don't know what you're getting into you think you do <laughs> you don't right? There's some surprises along the way and yet There's some sense of adoption you can see what you are getting into and God could see in our future and everything He knows exactly what he's getting into and still says I want you Now let's be honest how many of you would think that if God could see you the entirety of your life, the decisions you have made would say, I want you? It's remarkable, isn't it? This picture of adoption is important because it helps us understand this is not something we've earned, it's something that God desires to give us. Then we get to this word called what? Election, which gives us a lot of headaches. Uh, in the scripture uh, when we get to it and discuss it in churches once again and another other people who've grown up in all different types of ways through this but before we kind of land on some of this we've got to unpack a little bit but first off look at second timothy 1 9 where it says who saved us and he called us right to a holy what calling. calling so he called us to a calling kind of okay we get that right but because of our works not because of our works but because of his own what Purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. Um, I say this because this is important, because in this, this passage of Scripture, you are saying that he is saving us, but he is also calling us to something, right? So when we get to election, a lot of times in Scripture, you have to realize that sometimes it is about salvation, and sometimes it is about calling, okay? Okay. I'm I'm wanting to bring this person to salvation, and sometimes I'm wanting to bring this person into service. God knows about us and desires us anyway, both for those two things, both for salvation and for service. So we think about election, we think of whoever gets the most votes wins. When the Bible speaks about it is this, it is God's sovereign desire to bring people who don't deserve to be in his presence into his presence. It's God's sovereign desire to send a bunch of riff raff like me and say, "I want you to be used for a purpose"? And once again, if I was drafting a team, I don't think I would have picked me. And yet, God does. God desires me. He wants to use me. Then you also this aspect that is in the Bible that you know, election that he's he's this that there's this desire on His part. But what about also our decision? You see in Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At this point, he is saying, you need to make a decision. What are you going to do with what I just said? It wasn't decisions been made for you. It's you got to make a call, right? So, so now here's this balance. So is, is God sovereign over that? Are we responsible for that? The answer is yes, both somehow, right? And the complexity now. This is what we we think about, right? The Bible puts a level of responsibility to follow Jesus in the hand of the who? The individual. Jesus is not making the decision for you. In fact, I always think about the rich young ruler, right? Remember the rich young ruler who comes up? Jesus says, he goes, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? He said, follow the commandments. I follow all of them. Oh, yeah? All of them? Ever since I was a kid? Okay, great. Then what should I have to do? Sell everything you have and follow me. God says, I'm out, right? He doesn't follow Jesus. Jesus calls him to, but he's unwilling to do what? What Peter said repent, change, turn around. There's a decision that this guy has to make. Now, as we go down to it, we have to talk about questions regarding salvation. So, with this, I'm going to use some words that some of you have heard and discussed and debated, and some of you are like, I didn't even know this was a thing. Uh, but let me explain a, a little bit something to you that will at least help. I'm gonna I'm gonna take three denominations for a quick second, okay? We're gonna talk about here Rocky Creek. We are Baptist. Uh, we're gonna take uh, over here. This P stands for Presbyterians, and the M stands for. You might want to guess uh, Methodist, okay? Right? So Methodists. Now, there's a lot of different denominations, and I could do this all day, and we'd be really really lost, okay? If we uh, there's so many of them out here. But I'm gonna use these three for example. Um, When we talk about salvation, we're going to use a word in a second called Calvinism that is most likely associated with Presbyterian, okay? And then there's going to be this other term called Arminianism, which I know is a lot of words, okay? Uh, That's going to be more tied toward Methodist, okay? Now what this is is on these things, when the Presbyterian category would believe a lot more in God's sovereignty and election of people that God chooses people for salvation to come into relationship. On the other end of the spectrum, Methodist, Wesley, different people that would consider more Arminianists would say this. They believe God doesn't make the decision. You have to make the decision for you. And you go, where are the Baptists (laughs) at? Right in the middle. Right in the middle. So let me explain this to you because this may be different. Um, For the most part, the two denominations here on the side kind of say, this is where we stand on these issues, right? Core doctrine of who we are, what we believe about these issues. Presbyterians over here, Methodists over here, others kind of whatever. Baptists believe... For the most part, okay? For the most part, that there is enough God choosing and enough whosoever will, that both of them are in the Bible, and there's almost an allowance to say, we're going to agree on what we know that we can agree on and give freedom in the discrepancies, if that makes sense. Now, for those of you who like clean stuff, you're really going to get frustrated with Baptists, okay? But uh, let me explain why this, this kind of settles this way. Now, let me, uh, does that make sense thus far? See this difference? One is God's sovereign over salvation. There's kind of that choosing aspect. One is, ah, uh, we don't really believe that. And for the most part, the denomination of Baptists. Now, what you also see is this. Because Baptists are in the middle, guess what you would find? In this church, we're going we're gonna to talk about in our church, we've got people on all ends of the spectrum of what they would believe about this issue here today, and let me explain how it goes, okay? So, uh, what is Calvinism, okay? How many of you have heard this term? Raise your hand, okay? Some of you are like, what does this have to do? Okay, I'm gonna explain it to you. Calvinism is a system of beliefs clarified by John Calvin to describe what we call Reformed, what? Theology, okay? So, you might hear Reformed theology, you might hear Calvinism. You also may sometime hear this thing called Doctrines of... Grace is what a lot of people will call this type of thinking and whatnot. So once again, Calvinism is more associated uh, in the Presbyterian denomination and and, and that type of thing. But also, many, many Baptists would feel more of a Calvinist and what you're going to see in a little bit. Some people would determine themselves different levels of Calvinism based on how many points they believe. Okay? I'm really going to, some of y'all going to get like, I had no idea this was a thing. I didn't either, so I got to Bible college and realized people debated stuff over theology over the dining room table. Um, let me explain what this is. Five points that we're going to see uh, here, and these five points are acrostic that spell a little simple word. Let me write it down for you. It is tulip, okay? So if you can remember tulip, you can remember the five points of Calvinism will help you kind of understand this. The first T is total depravity, which means this all humanity is spiritually dead due to their sin. Okay? T stands for total depravity. All humanity is spiritually dead due to their sin. This belief, would it say that they are sick? No, they're not sick. They are what? Dead. So in this, um, can a dead person come back to life on their own initiative? No. Not kind of even miraculous if a dead person comes back to life because of somebody else's initiative, but definitely when Lazarus is in the tomb, Lazarus is not going, you know what I want to do right now? Right, okay? He's dead. Okay? He's not coming back to life. He is dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. Nothing. Okay? They just sit there and they rot, and that's what the idea is. So in total depravity, this thought is: all humanity, all humanity, there is none righteous, no, not even one. So we say, I agree with that. All humanity is spiritually dead due to their sin. That's T. Okay? Now As you go on, when I say, like, some of you you are like, I like that one. I'm a Calvinist. Okay, well, hold on. Okay. Um, This is one point of it, and and this is where some of you have ever heard somebody say, I'm a four-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist. This is where this comes from. Okay. So, T is total depravity. U is unconditional what? Election. God's choosing of people to salvation is not contingent upon a response. Okay. Now what this can be a little bit challenging for us to understand because also people would define this differently, and I'm trying to be as as safe as I can here, but the unconditional election, that word unconditional basically means this, God is doing the choosing, he's doing the initiation, he is the one who's reaching out, right? And it's not really dependent upon what you decide to do, it's dependent upon what God has already chosen to do, right? Right? So there is the U. Now let's talk about the L. The L stands for limited what? Atonement. Atonement. Christ's blood was shed to save a particular people. Now, write that down, and let me explain something to you. Most of you in this room believe in limited atonement even though you don't think you do. And let me explain why. If you put here unlimited atonement, What that can imply is, Jesus Christ has died, and guess whose blood he covers? Everybody. Right? Unlimited atonement. That's also a theological stance that's called universalism, which means this. Everybody in the universe will be saved one day or not. They just get in, right? Everybody's in. Everybody's in. And you go, you mean the Hindu who's not a Christian? He's in. The Muslim who doesn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God? He's in. Uh, The person who's rejected God, he's in. Everybody's in. Unlimited atonement. So some of you are like, oh, maybe I do believe in the the limited atonement, right? It all comes down to how you, um, I would say it comes down to semantics, but this. But at some level, some of you would say this. Do you believe that someone who hears the gospel and rejects it and says, I don't want to follow Christ, and goes to hell, do you believe that Jesus' blood covers them? Most of you would say, well, no. They refused it, right? So in one sense, it's not unlimited. You do believe it's limited. But the question is this. Did Jesus only die for a certain group of people? Okay? that That's the description. Because most of you, once again, if you look at it this way, you'd say, well, yes, it's this group of people, right? Because they're going to receive it. And some of you would say, H-h-. so that's where this comes down to. Uh, the I stands for irresistible grace. When God calls to someone he chooses, they will respond. It is irresistible, right? When God beckons someone. When God calls out to someone, they are going to say yes. You know, it is basically like when I asked my wife on a date, it was irresistible. She could not say no to someone as fine as me. Okay, that was kind of the idea, right? This irresistible grace, there, there's something. When, when God woos a person, they are compelled to say Yes to him, um, and then fine. P, uh, the last one, uh, P is perseverance of the saints. Once you are saved, you are what? Always saved. Now, this one means this. That basically what it says. But if you are in the hands of Jesus Christ, John ten twenty eight says nobody can snatch you out of His hands. Right? His hand, His grip is strong. If salvation's in your hands, you might drop it. If it's in His hands, it's not going to drop it. So if so, you go yeah, but what about so people would say well, what about those people who seem like they followed Jesus but they walked away and they're not they're not walking with them anymore? This view would say well, they actually never were saved. They just got spiritual for a little bit, right? You ever known somebody who seemed kind of spiritual for a few months, few years, and then all of a sudden, whoo, gone? They would say well, that wasn't a true legitimate salvation because if it's true, it sticks, right? You're in. You're 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 not budging from it. So. I give you those those five right those five T U L I P and some of you would say man I'm yeah I, you, you see where now you'd say I'm a four point or a three point or a three and a half point or a um, you know whatnot this is where it gets really confusing right some of you would say especially I'll go ahead and, and tell you most of you in this room and I, I don't know I don't know everybody who stands I don't know where you came from I doubt many people in this room have too much of a problem with the T and the P right. T is, we're all messed up. Some of you are like, yeah, that's easy. Okay, right? You don't have to be a theologian to figure that out. We are all messed up. And P, if you truly are saved, you're always going to be saved. Now, some of you would have a problem with P because there are many um, denominations and beliefs that says you can lose your salvation, right? You have it, then you lose it and whatnot, and that's that's a scary place to be. But most people in this room would probably say the T and P you got no problem with. The U, the L, and the I, you have some variation of how you might believe or interpret those things. Now, on the other side is this view that's called Arminianism. It's a really hard word to say, by the way. Um, Arminianism is a system of beliefs clarified by Jacobus Arminius that highlights man's what? Responsibility. So, Calvinism really focuses on God's sovereignty. Arminianism focuses real, real... um, uh, focused on man's responsibility. So with this, you go, What's the, well, how are these views seen? Well, it's pretty much the opposite. Um, the P there, the partial depravity, humanity is sinful but still able to seek God. So in this view, they would think, okay, I know we're all sinful, but there's still something left in us that causes out us to seek out for God. And once again, you see how subjective some of these terms are, right? Seek for God, well, what does that mean, right? Am I truly seeking God? Am I just spiritual? Or I like to go out side and look at the mountains and think about somebody above? Like, what does that mean? But this view would say, humanity is sinful, yes, but they're still able to seek God. Next, conditional election. God chooses those who he knows will choose to believe. Okay? See this? This is kind of the idea. I'm gonna choose you because I can see the future and I know one day you're gonna choose me. So therefore I chose you before you chose me, but you are choosing me, but at the same time I'm choosing you. Who's on first? Right? <laughs> Who's on second? Right? Who's on what what comes first? But this you understand how um I'll be honest, that sounds really good if you can get your head around it, right? That God's So Romans eight says, those who he foreknew, he predestined, right? So he could foreknowledge, he could see ahead. I see what you're going to do, I see what's going to happen, but I'm going to predestine you one way or the other, okay? Uh, Unlimited atonement, Jesus died for all, 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 right? But even within this line of thinking, that means different things to different people, right? So one end, most of you here would say, I got no problem saying that Jesus died for all, but you wouldn't go as far as saying, but his blood covers all even though if they reject him, right? You see the difference there? Next one uh, is resistible grace. People can reject God's call to be saved. God can come calling and say, I, I desire you, and people can push back against him. Once again, you go, well, is that, you know, if somebody's pushing back, what does that mean? And is God in that, is he not? Um, how do we play that out? And the last one is what's called conditional salvation. Christians can lose their salvation. Some of you uh, would probably say, I grew up that way, believe in that way, grandmama thought that, my pastor thought that, and I I, I really think um, that way. This is um, a friend of mine who believed that you can lose your salvation said, it is one of the most overwhelming, frustrating, scary things in life, thinking that any day I could do something that tip the scales in the wrong way. And I'll be honest, if, you could lose your salvation. I'd have done lost it about 23 times <laughs> last week. Okay, right, okay. There's, there's a lot of challenges, right? So, so this is a, a hard thing to f- figure out. Can you lose your salvation, right? Well, that's where we have to come down to. Now, let me, let me explain something with this, right? So, when I say that, like, uh, it's, it's a little bit easier to, to think about, uh, for example, the, the, I'll go back to the tulip thing, right? You could say, well, depending upon how you define those things, I might believe this one, this one, well, and, well, in some ways I kind of believe this one, or maybe I believe, it, it depends on how you define it, right? You might be a 2 point, 3 point, 4 point, 5 point, 0 point, whatever, and it gets really confusing. I would say that at this church, we've probably got people who believe 1 points, 2 points, 3 points, 4 points, 5 points. Probably got a couple that believe six points. And you go, which one's that? It's not even, we can't go there today. Okay, but um, they will believe this. And you go, well, how, how can we remedy that? In fact, can I just tell y'all, this would be personal testimony a second. So um, some of y'all know some of my story of how I got here. I'm not going to go and belabor that. But one of the questions that I got from a search team at this church was this one night. I was meeting with these guys. They wanted to know about me, know about my family, know about my theology. And somebody said, are you a Calvinist? I said, what does that mean? And they start dying laughing. You know what it means. I said, but do you know what it means? Okay. And they said, no, seriously, are you one? I said, describe it to me. Well, you know. I said, okay, let me do this way. I'm going to ask you this question. Okay. This is what I said to the people there that night. I'll, I'll ask you. Do you believe that God does the heavy lifting for our salvation or we do it? Well, God does. Do you believe who's initiated the relationship? God did or we did? God did. Okay. Um, Do you believe that Jesus' blood is shed for all and everybody's going to be saved? No. I said, do you believe that once you're saved, you're always saved? Yeah. I said, you guys are a lot more reformed than you think you are. Okay, right? Now, I, I say that because it all comes down to how you define certain things and see things, right? And what we've got to determine here is I... I don't really have a whole lot of stock in making sure that everybody in this church knows whether they're a Calvinist or an Arminianist or a two-point this or four-point that. I want you to know, do you know the Bible? Right? If that's the most important thing. These things divide us, right? But let's look at this question of, is God sovereign? Because this is key for us. We've got to answer this question. We know this from Scripture that God has the sole authority to have complete control over the universe, right? Argue with Him. Good luck. Right? I mean, let's be honest. This is important because when I was wrestling through this, when, once again, all my friends are debating all this stuff and Bible college and seminary and everybody's disagreeing and being ugly to each other, I'm like, okay, I've got to come and have one guy who says, well, if you truly are saved, Travis, you're going to come to the knowledge of where I am. I was like, oh, wow, okay, there you go. Like that, you know, and so all the time that kind of stuff happening, right? And I just remember I was scared of reading places like Romans chapter 9. You ever read that chapter? It's hard. Ever read Exodus? Where it seems like Pharaoh starts to harden his heart, but then all of a sudden something turns and God starts doing it? God says, I'm going to make you rise up. And no, oh, you think you're going to bend the knee? No, keep being defiant a little bit longer because these people need to see how powerful I am. That's hard, right? And I had to get to the place that I might find things in Scripture that I don't like, but at the end of the day, what am I going to do about it? Now, I want to get to the place where I like it, right? I want to get to the point, place where I own it, I agree with it, I'm all in. But at the end of the day, if God said in His Word, the only way you're going to get to heaven is if you stand on your head and cluck like a chicken for the next 10 years, what are you going to do about it, Right? Right? And so you go, okay, well, that's not fair. Who cares? He's God. You're not. So you've got to start there. Before you start, I don't like this. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. Like, you're not going to come up with a better version of God than who he truly is. Right? So you've got to start there before you start assuming certain things. You need to know God does not need to seek our permission for anything. He is God. And even if he rules in a way that you don't like... Tough. <laughs> he's God and there might be a reason in that I know it seems shocking he might know more than we do right Amen. so you got to start from that place because if you don't you're going to be all messed up in your feelings and say a whole lot of crazy things and we need to know this God is wholly sovereign or he is not sovereign at all sovereignty implies complete control Now, if I had complete sovereignty over this room, right, which I don't, if I did, even if I had complete sovereignty doesn't mean I have to exercise it to make everything happen the way that I do, even if I have that power. Does that make sense? So, God in his sovereignty has the authority to do all things. But even within his authority, he has the authority to allow us the responsibility to do certain things. Fallen, So look at it this way. The other question is, are we responsible? Look what Deuteronomy 30, 30, 15 says. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. You've done what? I've set it before you. To do what? Make a decision. You want to live or you want to die? You want to follow me or you want to follow the world? Which one do you want to do? Well, that sounds like you're giving us the choice. God goes, I just did, right? Make up your mind. Joshua says, choose this day whom you're going to serve, right? Me or them? Just make up your mind. I'm not going to be upset about it. You just got to make the call, right? God has complete control to allow us limited control. You follow? Some of you are like, I don't know if I like that. I'm sorry. But think about it this way. God has complete control to allow us limited control. So let me give you this. I I had to write this down so I wouldn't misspeak here. But that God is sovereign and man is responsible. While this paradigm seems contradictory, these thoughts are actually complementary. If we are given such rights to make individual decisions, God must maintain control or else chaos will reign. While we want him to have limited power, he can have nothing of the sort. God is wholly sovereign or he is not sovereign at all. Our tensions reveal that we desire God to be in absolute control as long as we still maintain the power to veto his decisions when we deem necessary. We unjustifiably hold that he should seek our endorsement for actions that directly affect us. If God has to seek our permission, that implies we are sovereign, not him. Are we truly to make our own decisions? Are we free to make them? It depends. I am free to choose between chocolate or vanilla. Right? I have the opportunity to marry this woman or that woman. I can make the call to give or to take. God freely gives me such freedom. God's authority even grants me a certain level of authority. We do have a considerable amount of freedom. But we also have restricted it or he's restricted it significantly. I am unable to give myself wings to fly. Right? I choose a swirl, but I can't I can't fly. Ain't gonna happen. I do not possess the power to change my ethnicity. I am not able to change the path of admission into heaven. Why? Because God is sovereign and I am not. Psalm 115, 3 says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. In this complexity, we discover. Frustration, yet brilliance. In his sovereignty, God has complete control to allow us limited control. The tension and yet the resolution is seen succinctly in the decision of Judas' betrayal. Think about it this way. Jesus came to earth on a mission for the cross, and yet Judas's deceitful treason was the catalyst for Jesus' arrest. Right? So it says in Mark fourteen twenty one: For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So was God sovereign or Judas responsible? The answer is yes. yes. While it appears if there is tension, there can be none. Follow this. Jesus' divine sovereignty over the cross never negated Judas's human responsibility of his betrayal. It must stay in this tension because the two other options are unthinkable. If God was surprised by Judas' betrayal, that means he is not sovereign and the future is unknown. Follow? I didn't see that one coming. Man, I can't believe he did that. We in trouble. We in big trouble, right? Okay? But if God is the catalyst behind sinful choices, that means we are not responsible and God ordains sin. That can't fit either, Right? Judas made his choice under the jurisdiction of the unshakable sovereignty of God. As evidence in the uniquely pivotal moment of redemptive history, God can even use the sinful actions of men to accomplish his great purposes. The sovereignty of God confirms that he can bring all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 says. We do not need to seek reconciliation between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility because they've never been at odds with one another. Right? we okay there? So this is how this rolls down. Can God's sovereignty and man's responsibility be reconciled? This is what Charles Spurgeon says. I do not try to reconcile friends. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor who a lot of times would struggle because he would see himself as someone who would be more Calvinistic in his theology and yet he was as evangelistic as the day was long and people would say, well, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He goes, I don't reconcile friends. They're good together. And they go, no, 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 it's one or the other. He's like, no, it's not. Both, both of them are in the scriptures and we cannot hide from either one. The Bible contains passages that seem contradictory but actually support one another. Let me give you a few examples here. Jesus' teaching, for example, in Matthew 10, 29, it says, no sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's involvement, right? A sparrow falls to the ground, my father sees it, right? So some people would even say, so is God sovereign every time a sparrow falls? Well, he's not going, oh, I want that one to live a little bit longer, oh no, right? God's not weak and he can't do something. So it says here that, that God's even aware of every time a sparrow falls, that he's sovereign over it. And yet, that's Matthew 10, what? 29? Three verses later. It says, whoever acknowledges God is welcome in heaven. So in one you see the sovereignty of God, and the other one is you've got to make the call to see if you're going to follow this God or not. Apparently, these two things have no conflict in the theology of Jesus. Regarding Judas, we looked at this just for a second. But in John twelve twenty seven, Jesus says, For this purpose, the purpose was the cross, I came to this hour. Oh, so you came to be put on the cross, so you're sovereign over it. Yes, I am. And then in Mark 14, 21, he says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. What? I thought you came to the cross, but now you're holding Judas responsible? Which one is it? Are you sovereignly going to the cross? Or is Judas' responsibility for his betrayal? Yes. It's both, right? Jesus wasn't surprised by this. He saw it all coming, and yet Judas was still responsible. He made his call. There was freedom for him to make that call. Look at this in in some mission trips, right, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, it says, As many has been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, that verse is not probably something like, I don't like the way that sounds. Sounds like God appointed people to believe, right? Because that's what it says, right? He doesn't really mix up. I think that's what it says. You can skip it. You can parse it all you want to. But at the end of the day, Dr. Luke wrote down, there's some people who got saved that day. Which ones? The ones that got appointed to eternal life? They got saved. Okay. That's chapter 13, verse 48. I'm just going to keep reading. All right, go over a few verses to chapter 14, verse 1. It says, they spoke so effectively that a great number believed. What? What? I thought the only ones believed were the ones that God appointed. And now you're saying the ones that believe because these guys spoke the gospel so effectively that they understood it. So is it God being sovereign over salvation or these men being so responsible in the way they shared the gospel that God used it? Which one is it? It's both. It's both. God's sovereign and we're responsible, right? This one, uh, the Romans progression. I mentioned that I skipped Romans chapter 9 as long as I could. You ever want to read a, a chapter that will hurt your head? Romans chapter 9. He says in that chapter, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Two brothers, right? Older's Esau, Jacob's the younger. Esau, I mean, he's not the nicest guy in the world, but Jacob's a trickster. I mean, he's sketchy, okay? All the time getting in trouble. And God says, Yeah, I love Jacob and Esau, I hated. I chose the younger. Chosen for what? I chose him to lead this family. That's where the nation's going to come from. That's not right, God, but I determined it is, so apparently it is right. Right? So, here, so is God just doing it because he wants to, or does God know something about these two characters and he knows which one is going to? Either way, it's God's, right? He, he's sovereign over this. Then he says, uh, you know, if I want to raise Pharaoh up so I could basically drive him to his knees, You gonna find fault with me for doing that? He even says, Is the the clay gonna look at the potter and go, What are you doing with me? You I don't wanna be like this. Shut up, clay. Okay, right. Like I mean, that's not what the pot. But this is the potter's responsible, not the pot, right? The clay's not the, the potter's the one that's doing all this stuff. Now I say all that because Romans 9 18 says. God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. That's tough. I don't care what your theology is. If you just go like, oh, that's right. That's tough to swallow, right? You ever seen somebody just harden to certain things? And you go, is that because of their decision? Or is it because one thing you need to know in Romans chapter 9, he talks about Jacob, he talks about Esau, he talks about Pharaoh. Remember this, just because God does something with one person doesn't mean he does the same with every other person in the world, right? The, the, so, could God have sovereignly hardened Pharaoh so that the nations would understand that all of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was not a god and that all the gods that he tried to put in front of people were fake and he needed to raise him up to drive him to his knees so that the nations would know that there's a true God in Israel? God, no problem with that, right? That needed to happen. And, and what Romans chapter 9 is not saying is how God acts in every single situation. It's saying this, he has the authority to do what he needs to do. And who are we to question him with limited understanding? So that's Romans chapter 9, right? That's like the Calvinist favorite chapter in the Bible. And chapter 10 is the Arminianist favorite chapter in the Bible. Because it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and you want to go no that's not what it says chapter 9 says those elected right okay what that those God has chosen that that's who's been in Romans chapter 10 says everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved well in chapter 9 you just said right that that God hardens and, and, and tenderizes some and whatnot. And, and then all of a sudden, in chapter 10, you're saying, whosoever comes. Like, which one is it? And you've got to understand this. Um, Romans has 16 chapters, right? This is chapter 9. This is chapter 10. They're actually next-door neighbors to each other. Did you realize when Paul wrote this, there was actually no division here? It was just one long book, one long letter? There wasn't chapter 9, there wasn't chapter 10. When Paul wrote this, he did not think there was a problem with chapter 9 and chapter 10 being apart beside each other. You know why? Because they go together. They go together. God is saying he is sovereign over all things and he has done things throughout history to wake people up to the need for him and yet if you're going to find him, you've got to call upon the name of the Lord. It's on you. You've got to do this. And so it helps me that Apparently two chapters that are held by people who agree very, very differently are beside each other. How do we reconcile these two things? Here's one way to think about it. Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient for some. When you think about that L, that limited atonement one, right, that we had a little problem with, Christ's death, is it sufficient for all? Was Christ's death and His blood powerful enough to save every single last sinner that's ever lived on this earth? I would say yes and amen. It was sufficient. It was enough. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, which all could come to, but it's efficient for some. You know why? Because there's going to be a lot who reject it. Say they don't need it. Remember the the Passover? Uh, The... They came in and they had a doorpost to their house. Lamb was going to be slaughtered, but then what took place? You could actually have the lamb slaughtered, but you had to do something. You had to do what? Blood. Blood. Yeah, you had to you had to apply the blood on the doorpost of the house, right? Because if you didn't do that, when the when God's wrath would come, it would see the blood. It would be what? It'd pass over and go to the house. Why? Because somebody had already died in that person's place, so therefore they didn't need to die, but. The blood could have been a shed, and if it had not been applied, they still would have died in their sins. The same is true for Jesus. His blood has been shed, and it's sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who apply it on the doorposts of their soul and say, I am covered by the blood. I'm saved by him and him alone. So with this, you might be asking me tonight, same thing that the search team asked me years ago. Are you a Calvinist? Arminianist? How many points do you hold it to? I'm about to have a pastoral confession. I've never done it here at Rocky Creek. But I feel like now's the time. I'm, I'm past my five-year probation. <laughs> Got nothing up, Faye, I, I passed it, right? Or she gave me probation. I'm off my probationary period. We're after five years. What is the pastoral confession? Am I a Calvinist? Am I an Arminiist? I actually am a Biblicist. I believe what the Bible says. And I really don't want to be referenced by... I don't know, anybody in the 15 or 1600s based on my theology, I'll just go back to the Bible. Okay, I'm going to go all the way back there. And I'm going to thank God for people like John Calvin and the likes and whatnot who helped organize thoughts and helped really clearly see things and help the church see things throughout the years. But at the end of the day, I believe that there is a Bible that says that God is sovereign and man is responsible and apparently it has no problem with those two things and so therefore neither will I. And I struggle because I like things in nice, tidy boxes, and this isn't one for me. It's not. And some people say we haven't worked hard enough. I think actually the issue is that God has placed eternity in our hearts where we cannot understand it completely. The issue is, out of all the scripture we can look at, and we're about to wrap up here tonight, Ecclesiastes 3.11 is a linchpin for me to help me understand this truth. Because it says he has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. He has also set what? Eternity Eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the what? Even to the end. Apparently, y'all ready for this? God has put inside our souls a longing for eternity of which our finite minds cannot comprehend right now. If I could understand everything about salvation, you know what? That's not that impressive. If, if my, my simple way of thinking could go, oh, this is how God works, now we work, and it makes it so simple and clear, whatnot. God has said he's made everything appropriate, he's put eternity in our hearts, yet so that we can't find out everything that he's doing. In fact, the knowledge of God is something that he protects at some level from our understanding right now. Genesis 2.17 even says, right? They had a desire to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good evil so that they would know what God knew. They wanted a knowledge that God said, that's mine. I make the call, you don't. They go, well, God, if I can't understand, what am I going to have to do? Trust me. That's it. Well, how do I trust you? Because I don't know. Like, should I be just sharing the gospel like crazy? Or should I just trust you for everything? Like, there are some people on this side of the spectrum that say, you know what? We should share the gospel. We don't have to go on mission trips. You know why? Because God has chosen some of the salvation. And it really doesn't matter what we do. And there's some that say, no, we've got to go and go and go and work and work and work. And we have to present so well so that the people can come. I had a friend say this to me years ago. He's a pastor, and it helped resolve so many things in my heart. He said, Travis... During the day, I preach like an Arminius, like it all depends on me. But when I go to bed, I sleep like a Calvinist because I know it all depends on God. It's not a bad approach, right? I'm going to preach and go and share as much as I can and understand this. God may use this, may use that. It's not up to me. What he's put in my power is to share wherever I can. And so I'm going to preach like an Arminius and I'm going to sleep like a Calvinist. That's how I'm going to live my life. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 wraps it up for us this way no matter how many theological degrees you possess there are some secret things you simply will not know until you see Jesus Deuteronomy 29 29 says it this way the secret things belong to our God that's not nice as keeping a secret he knows we can't handle it folks so at the end of the day God is sovereign enough to allow us the opportunity to do certain things and we walk in faith with him every single step of the way and see that end father tonight help us share the gospel with as many as we possibly can understanding this We don't know what's going on in their life and what you're doing and what other people have done But you have placed within us the power and the beauty of the gospel to share with as many people as we possibly can And at the end of the day, it's not in our power to save anybody It is the power of the gospel But that is the means that you have sovereignly put into our hands And so we will go and we will go and we will go And we will sleep well at night knowing that you are in sovereign control And whenever you call for us to come home, we will be ready And with everything we can do, we want to bring as many people as we possibly can. And so, God, tonight, as we go home, let us work as if so much of it depended upon us, but we sleep understanding that it really doesn't. Because you are in control, we're not, and we really think that's a much better way. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.